0: Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation, as well as Consulting Editor at New Lines Magazine. Uh, This week, we're joined by the very esteemed Elliot Cohen. He is a Professor of Strategic Studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Listeners of this show, I have no doubt, will have read his uh, superb essays in the Atlantic, uh, all about the war in Ukraine, and he's um, a first-rate military historian also a friend of mine and somebody I've been wanting to get on the program for quite a while. Elliot, it's great to have you on. You and I first sort of connected Twitter, as you do these days, in discussion of not just the war, but sort of the media's framing of the war. I think we were both of the same opinion that, in fact, whereas there was a lot of strange, almost counterintuitive opinion that that the U.S. had been quite bullish on Ukraine and, and was pushing it into sort of more robust conflict with Russia. We believe that actually, no, the US and the West in general seem to be quite doom and gloom about Ukraine's prospects. You know, they were incapable of holding Kyiv until they did. They were certainly going to be incapable of mounting counteroffensives until they did in Kharkiv and then Uh They wouldn't be able to absorb NATO standard military equipment, including HIMARS, um, 150 millimeter howitzers, et cetera, et cetera. And as we were logging on to record this episode, it's just been announced, well, two two developments. First, the Biden administration is, quote, leaning towards sending between, I think, 50 and 60 M1 Abrams tanks to Ukraine, which is kind of extraordinary and something I, in a million years, didn't see happening, given all the messaging about how difficult the Abrams are to maintain and repair and et cetera. They run on jet fuel and other things, but whatever. Uh, and then the second development, which is perhaps more significant is that Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor of Germany, has just, or Der Spiegel has just reported that he has agreed to send a company of Leopard tanks to Ukraine directly, as well as authorize the Poles and presumably other nations. I hear the Norwegians are now talking about this to send Leopards themselves. So we're now at a point, 11 months into this war, where not only did Kyiv not fall in 72 hours, but now, essentially, NATO is creating a combined arms warfare mechanism for Ukraine to press the fight to the Russians and possibly retake even more territory. I mean, first of all, what are your what's your your sort of perspective on this conflict, almost a year in? I know you've been somewhat critical of how the U.S. military analytical community was, you know, forecasting the quite an opposite outcome to what we've seen. Um, you've also been somewhat critical of the United States for not getting its act together sooner and. Sending this kind of heavy equipment and armor and attackums et cetera to Ukraine, but where do we stand today? And is Elliot Cohen happy with with the latest news? (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, first it's great to be with
1: you. Um, Elliot Cohen is never happy, so I I mean, except when I'm playing with my grandchildren. Mm -hmm. I guess I would let's say a number of things. First, um, I do think a lot of the original missteps were rooted in these analytic failures. You know, not through any ill will, but I think a a general and quite comprehensive set of misjudgments by people outside the intelligence community and people in it that the Russians were very very powerful and the Ukrainians were very very weak and divided and corrupt and as you said that the expectation which the Russians certainly shared was that they'd be able to roll through at least the eastern half of the country in uh, three days with about a week and a half of mopping up. Yeah, uh, that is such a large question that it's actually really does merit research and in fact uh, our mutual friend Phillips O'Brien and I are launching a, a series series of projects to try to dig into it. Because when people make mistakes, smart people make uh, knowledgeable people make mistakes this large, it's really interesting to figure out why. And there's a tendency, I think, that uh, certainly all governments have, but academics have it as well, not to look back and say, wow, why did we miss this one so badly? Yeah. So I you know, I think that's largely been corrected, although I think we haven't quite adjusted to the fact that the Ukrainians really seem to have quite remarkable ability to absorb sophisticated technology very quickly. I mean, we're gradually learning, you know, as we, we give them each piece of equipment, and it turns out they can use it very effectively, and it turns out they can learn to use it a lot more quickly than one would normally think. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, you know, that's good. First thing, I think, to be fair to the Biden administration, you know, they did a brilliant job of rallying a coalition initially to support Ukraine and of distributing the intelligence information they had before the Russian attack, which had... um a number of very important consequences, not the least of which was to really restore American the reputation of American intelligence, but above all to restore American leadership in Europe. And I think what we've seen in this whole kerfuffle about tanks is there is still no substitute for American security leadership right. in Europe. I mean, other countries have stepped up and will step up, but at the end of the day, you do need the United States to lead the way. So why am I not entirely happy? Well, first, it's, this is a horrible war, which is inflicting terrible, terrible suffering on the Ukrainian people. But but I think, you know, if, just to, having said that, the thing that I think is unfortunate is I still don't feel the sense of urgency that that I would like to see. You know, whether it's in the kinds of weapons we deliver, there's no reason for not delivering a TACM so that the Ukrainians can really cover all of their uh, territory that's under Russian control and really go about dismantling uh, the Russian logistical systems. Urgency in just in terms of industrial mobilization. You know, their uh, CSIS, where the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where I also had part time, just issued a very, very good report called Empty Bins, which is really about the inadequacy of our industrial mobilization for this war. Now, you know, again, people are gradually beginning to fix that. But what you need is a sense of urgency, willingness to set aside the usual bureaucratic rules. We can do that. We have done that in the past. There are legal mechanisms to do that in the United States and elsewhere, but we don't have it. And I think at the root of this is are two things. One, the sort of vague fear of Russian escalation, which I've argued in a number of places is misplaced, but I think more fundamentally a failure to really understand the nature of large scale war. Mm-hmm. And the nature of that is that this is not like an insurgency where you can say it's, you know, multi-phases, years long. This is something where success goes to the side that moves most swiftly and forcefully and retains the initiative and keeps the other guy off balance and presses advantages, that's what the Ukrainians really need. Yeah, And we are still not really fully delivering on that, although we're getting better. Last thing I'll say, just to open up the discussion, having said all that, and I have been quite critical of our response and the German response, the fact is, it's quite remarkable what we're doing now. If you consider where people were on February 23rd of last year. If you consider, moreover, the, the extent to which the European, the West Europeans and the Germans in particular had convinced themselves that we're in a very, very different kind of world where wars don't happen and you don't have to do difficult and dangerous things because you can be dealing with a really evil aggressor as opposed to a partner with bad manners, you know, that's required breaking of that mindset. And on the whole, right. I think one has to say it has happened. And so as I look at the future, I think we will actually be, we're doing, sort of doing the right thing now, not not enough, not fast enough. I think we'll continue to do the right thing. And I think we'll continue to do more of the right thing. So that does make me optimistic about where the Ukrainians can go with this. Even though I think we're in for, a, they are in for a particularly difficult winter, spring,
0: and summer. Yeah, well, it is kind of extraordinary to see, as you say, this sort of evolution of thinking in terms of security assistance, and the fact that this coalition has not really. Ruptured or or splintered in the way that I think Putin was calculating it would yes. is really remarkable. I mean, there there are some fissures and cracks, and the Hungarians are being the Hungarians, and as we you know, the Germans the tur- they yeah. had this whole fandango about tanks, but it's now been resolved positively. And you know, I don't care if they claim credit for doing it in an ass backward and self destructive manner. I mean, the fact that they're doing it is is all that, that really matters. And,
1: and to be fair, you, you know, the, the Germans, the big step I think was initially. When they began providing lethal aid to the Ukrainians. And that's not just anti aircraft yeah. and anti missile systems. They provided very effective anti tank weapons almost from the very beginning. Yeah. So it means that they've been giving things mm-hmm. which are going to kill Russians. They have never done that before. Right. You know, that's really out of the norm. And in general, what we're doing now is. Out of the norm, we are doing stuff of a that's of a kind that we didn't do, say during uh, the Russia's Afghan war, when we were giving lethal aid, to be sure, but not on this scale, and not you know right next to the Russian the Russian homeland. So it's I can understand why it's a it's a bit of a leap for them.
0: Yeah, I mean there still is based on some of the reporting I'm working on now. The line I'm getting out of the Biden administration is there has been also an evolution in thinking. One of the reasons I've heard it said and I've heard it reported, we were not providing attackums, is that this would cross one of Putin's many ever-changing red lines, right? But now, what I understand is, well, actually, no, it, it's not about that anymore. The, the fear of escalation has diminished as an argument, probably as a result of just demonstrable facts. I mean, Putin has been hit uh, repeatedly, the Kerch Bridge was nearly sunk, or at least one of the, um, the Span's. Collapsed into the water. Crimea, Saki Air Base last August was hit pretty uh, heavily. Uh, and not only did this not lead to any kind of palpable escalation on the Russian part, but in some cases, as, as in with Saki, it was just an accident. They don't even attribute it to a, a kinetic act on the part of the Ukrainians. So there has been this lessening of this lowering of the temperature about fear. And you notice that World War III doesn't get invoked by White yep. House officials anymore. And, and actually, what I find fascinating to your point about industrial mobilization supply chain issue, I'm hearing that the big sticking point on munitions like attackums isn't that they're seen as too much of a threat to the Russian side. It's that there is a consideration that when we've provided Gimler's and advanced artillery to the Ukrainians, as you would imagine, and this is no fault of their own, you know, in the process of absorption, they ended up expending ammo on low to mid value targets, right? So they're, they're so eager to fire these things at the bad guys, they're not being discriminating in what they're doing. So with attackums, the because they're more expensive, they're more powerful, there's a concern of, well, where are we going to get them? And how are they, how selective will the Ukrainians be in terms of how they use it, which, again, is progress, right? It's not about, you know, we cannot do this, it's how do we do it effectively. So that's, you know, that, that seems to be uh, moving along.
1: And, and and there are ways around that. I think there is you know there's an element of bureaucratic caution too because the United States is facing a world in which we've got really two you know one great power Russia and one's. Very, really great power at China were very, very serious problems. We've realized we can't disentangle from the Middle East. So, you know, I can understand why military bureaucrats will be cautious about expending certain kinds of munitions, but that's why uh, politicians and, uh, to some extent, generals get paid to make the the larger decisions. I mean, the strategic payoff to the United States from a really crushing Russian defeat in Ukraine are enormous. And you know, we're not because we don't think about war in that way, we, we don't pause and reflect. Well, you know, what would the world look like if the current Russian forces in Ukraine were routed and you know, the vast majority of them either fled or were killed or were captured. Right. And the answer is it would from our point of view, it would be a much better. Uh, world. It would be a world in which there would undoubtedly be internal turmoil in Russia because it would be a huge humiliation. Russia has a history of turning in on itself after a big defeat. It would be very, very sobering for the Chinese as they think about Taiwan. It would reaffirm European unity uh, in important ways. It would certainly liberate Ukraine and enable Ukraine to begin reconstruction. You know, undoubtedly enhances the prestige of Western, but specifically American military power and uh, and intelligence. So there is a very high payoff from a really smashing victory, which may well be within our reach if we do the right things.
0: Yeah. Well, to play devil's advocate, um, last week I had uh, Owen Matthews, who's a, the Spectator Moscow correspondent, just written a book on the war. His point of view is: look, um, and he's been to Moscow several times since February 24th. The sentiment in certainly the capital and the the major metropolitan areas in Russia, and even probably more so in the regions, is one of total indifference. The war is not even happening. There's not people lining the streets protesting. I mean, obviously, if you you even attempt that, you're going to get thrown in jail and you can face up to 10, 15 years. He believes that um, Putin is still ideologically wedded to this idea of taking Ukraine. He cannot afford to fail in his reconquest of this country. It's part of his legacy. He doesn't care about Russian lives. He can mobilize 100,000, 200,000. I mean, we can get into sort of, can he actually do that? But in his mind, this is what he believes. And Owen's point of view was, at some point, quantity does eclipse quality in military affairs. Um, You're shaking your head. I Explain. You don't think that
1: It's a quantity of a certain kind. A bunch of poorly trained, badly equipped, unscared, unmotivated, badly led Russian soldiers that's just targets for Ukrainian artillery and they'll you know what he he could end up doing is just getting tens of thousands more killed we're not dealing with the mongol hordes or you know medieval warfare and even in medieval warfare actually you know you had very lopsided victories and the british were outnumbered at ashencourt you know it, it a lot depends on you know the quality of the force and their motivation and determination and i think all the indications coming out of russia is they cannot do a really serious mobilization either they can probably get bodies out there right but they cannot mobilize their industry the way they need to replace uh their losses and they probably can't sustain those forces in the field if we give the ukrainians the kind of systems that allow them to hit the rail lines on which they on which they rely so you know i'm sure that's the view from moscow where people are passive and the russian leaders look fierce and determined but There's a lot more to the picture than that. And I think, you know, it's, you're more likely actually, I think, to get a distorted view out of Moscow than out of other places one could mention.
0: Armies you know Hemingway said of bankruptcy they you know it a collapse of an army happens gradually then all of a sudden right so and
1: our armies do collapse and much better armies than the russian army of uh, 2023 have collapsed you know if you look at how does world war 1 end uh the german army was a pretty good army and it collapsed in the late fall, late October, beginning of November of 1918. It was a collapse. It wasn't just that they decided, well, it's, it's you know now's the time to throw in the towel. Troops began deserting, troops began fleeing. They had to worry about mutinies. Well, the same thing is going to be true of the Russians. They're not. They're most definitely not superhuman that way. And I think sooner or later, when Russian society is confronted with that, and when the Russian leadership elites are confronted with that. You know, there's a good chance that Putin won't be sticking around. Now, the other point I would make is. That mobilization has not hit the children of the middle class and the upper, certainly not the upper class. Right. Uh, You know, they've been dragging in people off the streets from rural areas, from from the Central Asian parts of the Russian Empire, uh, from poorer towns and villages and so on. But they've poured a lot of resources into keeping Moscow and St. Petersburg really reasonably happy, a few other cities as well, perhaps, and not asking too much of them. And things will change once, you know, the zinc coffins that are coming back are filled with the remains of uh, the children of the more prosperous middle upper middle class of those cities.
0: I mean, look, I try not to traffic in predictions or, or, you know, some people ask, well, how do you see it ending and how long do you think it will take? But I think I will ask you that question. I mean, do you see the deterioration of the Russian lines and, and their capability? I mean, you hear every day, you know, the Ukrainians are releasing intercepts of you know, Russian soldiers or mercenaries such as Wagner and Bakhmut and Solodar, just describing the utmost horrors. I mean, this isn't even World War One. I. I've, yeah. The Ukrainians are saying in Bakhmut, Wagner are using the corpses of their dead as sandbags. It's almost out of like Lord of the Rings, really. It's science fiction. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, you know, we in the West have a hard time having the moral imagination to kind of comprehend a situation like this where anybody would want to stick around and fight. But you know, the Russians are pretty good at putting up with a great deal of horror. Uh, Until though, they've had enough. We keep hearing And I know the US government assessments of this tend to be incredibly conservative slash pessimistic, because that's just a matter of course, we don't like to get ahead of our skis that we're in it for the long haul, this could last several years. And you you mentioned just throwing meat into the grinder from the Russian side, where it's all just destroyed by artillery, but that artillery has to be resupplied, we have to continue to arm Ukraine and provide it with the ammunition and the money to sustain its economy, plus its humanitarian considerations. I mean, is this going to last, as best you can tell, another year? Is it going to last several years? Could it be over by the end of this year? I mean, I know Carl, my Estonian military whisperer, who's, I think, been more shamanistic in his predictions uh, in a good way, (laughs) uh, said that, you know, given the current sort of pacing of things and if things progress in in the, the current trajectory, he believes that Ukraine is quite capable of retaking not just... February 24 borders, but Crimea, the LDNR occupied areas of Donbass, that's the most optimistic scenario I've heard. And I only because I know the source, I credit it pretty highly. What do you think?
1: Well, actually, uh, there are others who take that view too, most notably General Ben Hodges, the former US Army Europe commander. Yeah, And by and large, I think it's the, you know, retired generals have actually done a better job of assessing things than a lot of the intelligence uh, people. Look, you know, we don't know because it's a war and therefore it's unpredictable. Uh, if I had to guess, I think the period of the most intense fighting will probably be over this year, if only because it sounds like the Russians are going to try some big offensive, which is, you know, as uh, they said about Elizabeth Taylor's seventh marriage, the <laughs> triumph of hope over experience. And, you know, the Ukrainians are probably preparing something as well. hmm. And, you know, if it is anything like this past year, you know, we could, at the end of this, the Russians could have taken a third of a million casualties, which is a lot, given the demographic composition of the population and so on. And to make one further point in terms of will, part of our problem is we are seeing a lot of this through a World War II filter. Mm -hmm. You say, you know, you say the Russian military, you think about the Red Army in World War II. I'd remind everybody that Vladimir Putin, that uh, rather Stalin's son, fought on the front lines and was captured. right? And Stalin did nothing to get him out. Well, this is not a war in which the sons of people like uh, Mr. Peskov, the, uh, the spokesman, or any of the other members or Medvedev's son, those people are not serving on the front lines. So this is not a war in which people are so committed that they're really willing to send their kids out there to die for Ukraine.
0: Well, people also forget that in World War II the Red Army also consisted of Ukrainians fighting <laughs> yeah there were a lot of Ukrainians. Fighting. I, yeah there, I mean, there
1: were a lot there were a lot there were a lot of other things as well that made uh made that possible by the way including having British and above all American industrial Mike behind you to absolutely. feed you and provide you trucks and and all that mm-hmm. so I I would not be surprised if the kind of period of intense fighting is over this year and it Depending on what we do, I think I could easily imagine the Ukrainians taking back, if not all of the 1991 border, a good chunk of it. I mean, I could imagine them taking Crimea. I could imagine them taking most or maybe even all of uh, Donbass. Yeah. I think no matter what, though, what you're then going to be looking at is a period that will go on for years and years and years where you know the Russians come back for another round. Because I do not imagine a future in which Russian government is run by a bunch of liberals uh, who will just say, you know, this is a really stupid idea. The Ukrainians really are our brothers. They want to be independent. Fine. We we bless that. I think it's more likely to be a really nasty place, internally riven with competing elites, probably with a strong man to succeed Putin. And, you know, a general staff, which is very proud and quite humiliated and determined to to recover. So I think those are going to be the two big phases that lie ahead. Uh, a period of intense fighting, which you know you have to say would probably go on for at least through the fall, and then, but maybe longer, maybe less, who knows. And then a prolonged standoff in which the challenges become somewhat different, which are really, how do you rebuild Ukraine? How do you, you know, strengthen them so this a repeat of this doesn't look at all promising to the Russians?
0: Well, I mean, there is already an argument, perhaps premature, although I actually don't think so, about, look, this landmass called Russia is not going to disappear. And if your sort of forecast is correct things could get even worse internally, and therefore more threatening externally. You know, should Putin fall? If a guy like Patrushev takes over? um, I mean, just take a... I
1: don't quite think... I mean, that's obviously, that's certainly conceivable. But I think it's equally conceivable that the place goes through an internal period of turmoil. You know, one thing that strikes me... The rise of the Wagner Group and, uh, what's his name, Prigozhin, Paderov, Shoigu setting up his own private military company, the National Guard, regional governors having their own militias. The Russian government is losing what characterizes all governments. Which is the legitimate monopoly on the use of organized force? That's one definition of what governments are, and that seems to me to augur pretty poorly uh, for Russia's future internal stability. You know, Russia's had civil war before, and I can imagine that happening as well. I can imagine you know a fairly radical kind of decentralization, but in any case, I can imagine a leadership which may be uh, thuggish, but which once it establishes itself. Says, look, the only way we're going to get out of this is to somehow restore a normal kind of economic relationship with the West. Yeah. Maybe that won't
0: happen. But I mean, right. that may occur after the descent into warlordism and gangsterism. I mean, which would yeah. make the I think the gang- gangsterism,
1: the gangsterism is already there.
0: Yeah, gangsterism. Is there, but you know, as you say, like if it becomes, you know, the, the line now is the Kremlin has many towers, but if those towers are more like silos that are completely dependent of one another. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, I look, I've been told by U.S. officials that the real story to pay attention to is this faction fight that's now taking place. You mentioned Yevgeny Prigozhin; He's positioning himself almost in a Qasem Soleimani style manner uh, for a political role. So it seems right. Whether or not he has a constituency there, he certainly seems to be wanting to build one. With this um, just ridiculous campaign in Bakhmut and Solidar, you know already. So I, I agree, it could very well go that way. But I mean, the, the bigger question I was asking is: the West will need to have a Russia policy at some point, right? Yeah. And right now, you know, it seems like we're still okay. We have to sort of cautiously finesse or manage this Putin issue or phenomenon, whilst also getting more and more. Um, confident about Ukraine's ability to push the Russians out, but well, at
1: some point- I, I, well, I, I think that you're raising a very important point. You know, the, the official uh, strategy documents of the U.S. government talk about things like constraining Russia. They don't really wrestle with the fact that we're just dealing with a different Russia. I mean, of all people, I would uh, quote Dmitry Trenin, who was the head of uh, Carnegie Endowment's Moscow office,
0: who... For, for we, years known as the liberal wing of the GRU and... and Yeah. Not so liberal now. He was
1: the, the reasonable guy. You know? Right. But as you say, a, a GRU colonel. So he had this very long piece, which is quite interesting, which he kind of admits a lot of the really big screw ups. But then you know, what he says, and I think this is the point that people really have to focus on. He says, look, this is a a complete rupture with the West. He said that we're not going back to where we were before. And I think that's right. And that, what that means is that Western policymakers have to say, okay, that's now the world that we're in. We're not going to, not just not going to go back to February 23rd. We're not going to go back to February 23rd, 1987 before the end of the Cold War. We're not even going to go back to February 23rd, 1977, during when the Cold War was in a, a very difficult phase. I mean, this is not going to be a regime you can partner with on anything.
0: Well, I mean, you know, coming back to this point, you know, the conflation kind of Western imagination between the Soviet Union and the Russian Federation yes. is a dang- dangerous one and a misguided one. You know, you mentioned Lend-lease and Western industrial power helping the Soviets defeat Hitler. Lend-lease now, I mean, I'm not just talking about the Biden administration's version of it, but Western security assistance. If you look at the, the, the bulk of it, sort of per capita, it's all coming from either former republics of the Soviet Union or Warsaw Pact nations, right? The former Soviet empire is now helping one of its own, Ukraine, fight against a war of conquest and a campaign of genocide perpetrated by the former metropole, right? Yeah,
1: I wouldn't quite just go per capita. You know, I yield to no one in being critical of the Germans or the French. But actually, you know, in, in, in terms of substantive, you're right, on a per capita
0: basis, nobody beats the Estonians. Well, no, so. The Germans, I mean, funnily enough, and I, I, I've made this point in print, if you look at the, the actual materiality, yeah, have, they've given a lot of stuff. Arguably more than now the UK, even. And yet you wouldn't know it because they're so bad at their strategic. Uh, communication they are terrible. Or they don't well, want I, to take credit I, for
1: it. Or, look, the French, for example, I think have given away about a quarter of their artillery. Right. But the Caesar system is a very good 155 millimeter artillery piece. The Italians have been willing to step up. The Spaniards have been willing to, to step up. The Dutch. Certainly have. I mean, this is a European phenomenon, and you know, we. I sometimes think we're just so resistant to good news, yeah, that we don't step back and say, "Whoa, this is actually very impressive." You know, this it is impressive that after all those years of jawboning the Europeans about defense spending, yeah, they're actually going to beat their two percent targets. Now, will they be slow about it? Will they not do what we want? Yeah, sure, but that's not the point. I mean, the point is. This is a dramatic change from where we are, where we were. And our
0: challenge is to be say, okay, that's happened. Let's seize the moment. I'm kind of paid to be pessimistic myself and to kind of envisage the worst case scenario. My concern still is: let's assume your sort of forecast is turns out to be correct. So the heavy fighting diminishes or even ends at the end of this year, but then you have a sort of series of you wouldn't even call it a frozen conflict, but attempts to kind of scale the wall by Russia, right? Uh, Sorties, major attacks or campaigns that perhaps fizzle because the technological capability on the Ukrainian side is now so uh, improved. My fear is that all of this European resolve, cohesion, newly discovered unity begins to dissipate and people already you hear i mean you know there was that reporting that i forget who it was in the german government who as of february 23 was saying well we just hope it get the russians do this really quickly so we can get back to business as usual right And I know that argument is not as saleable now for moral reasons and also strategic ones, but I I still hear it. It's still background noise. We will have to revert to a status quo ante. Your argument that we shouldn't treat Russia as we did even in 1989 or 1997, I fear that that's not going to be the conventional wisdom all across Europe, uh, including in the countries that are doing quite a lot to help Ukraine at the moment. You know,
1: conceivably, but uh, that is where leadership comes in. You know, I I just refuse to view any of these things as predetermined. Sure. That's why I tend to be more unhappy than pessimistic. Leadership has the ability to transform things. And, you know, and I think, and leadership of a kind that's certainly not beyond this administration. It was the Biden administration demonstrated exemplary leadership in the run-up to the war
0: yeah and
1: they can do it again i think you know i look i wasn't happy with the idea of a retired general becoming secretary of defense i will say that it seems to me that secretary austin has actually done a remarkably good job of mobilizing his fellow defense ministers and to give ukraine the, the support that it needs yeah i think he is yeah i think he is well
0: he seems to be more forward-leaning than other members of the administration. I mean, look, even Emmanuel Macron is personally very invested in Zelensky. He likes Zelensky, he admires Zelensky. He has modeled his fashion sense in the run-up to re-election on Zelensky. But I think the argument he has made, kind of quietly behind closed doors, is, you know, I'm more hawkish on Russia than my country. And I have to kind of walk this knife edge between Yeah. But you know, that notwithstanding the, the French have done Remarkably well. And I mean, they may even now give Leclerc tanks just to kind of round off this trio of of main battle tanks for combined armed warfare, which is, again, extraordinary that they'd be even thought to do such a thing uh, a year into this conflict. But in terms of leadership, I guess this is the kind of, you know, the, the big variable here, because we're not, I would argue, we're not completely out of the woods in the United States in terms of a return to, I mean, I know you were a, a never Trump Republican floated a letter telling people don't yeah, start. I, <laughs> you know. I was one of the first ones you were. And, um, you know, look, I mean, I, I look at the news cycle and I think, okay, I don't see his campaign such as it is, isn't really going anywhere. He, possibly is facing indictments, lawsuits galore, all of these things. But then I'm I'm worried, look, there, as you said, there's nothing is predetermined. If Joe Biden runs for re-election, which it seems like he's going to do, there's no guarantee he will win. I can absolutely see, and I would heartily expect the Russians to get up to all kinds of shenanigans this election cycle, because now they have nothing to constrain them, uh, and they want... Revenge. I mean, you know, what happens if we don't have a president who cares as much about Ukraine and is willing to, as you put it earlier, corral other Western leaders into caring or pretending? Well, to care the, so that right.
1: is, uh, you know, it's a legitimate uh, concern. It's one of the reasons why they need to act with a sense of urgency now. Right. You know Run-load that everybody. election. Yeah. Right. The elections not till November of twenty twenty four. Right. So what that means is you've got over a year and a half, actually more than that, you have almost two years to really clinch this. And although, you know, parts of the Republican Party are extremely troubling on Ukraine, other parts are not. So, you know, Mike McCall. Chairman of the House Foreign Relations Committee, he's fine on Ukraine. Mike Rogers is the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee; he's fine on Ukraine. Lindsey Graham, who you know I really have my issues with because of his relationship with Trump, is positively ferocious on Ukraine. So again, these are all things which are in our power to do something about. I also think it's really important not to obsess about how things can go wrong, because in any war, lots and lots of things can go wrong. And instead, think about hey, what are the things we can do to make sure they go right? So, just one example. So, the Ukrainians seem to be in the middle of an anti-corruption kind of purge. I, you know, my my wife and I were just talking about it. Said, so, you know, what do you think this is about? I said, well, part of it may be this kind of general trend in Ukrainian society to Westernize and sort of accept Western standards and values. Some of it is probably a smart preemption of. Republican criticism in the house say so, yeah we've got uh corruption issues and we've you know put the guys responsible for it in jail
0: well i see a third possibility uh which is western intelligence namely american intelligence saying look we're giving you all this stuff we see problems in your institutions you know we can't afford politically to keep giving you stuff if you have elements that are just going to steal it so get your act together and what's
1: important there is that the ukrainians recognize it and act accordingly right which they seem to be doing. So I um, I mean, all these dangers exist. But at the end of the day, you know, here's the question you should always ask yourself and your listeners should always ask themselves, which hand would you rather play? Putin's hand or the West plus Ukraine's hand? And there's no doubt in my mind, I'd rather play our hand.
0: Yeah. Well, on that ringing note of endorsement for Western um, continued resolve and, and moral leadership i know you have to run elliot but uh it's been great having you on and uh we must have you back soon to see if your, are if at the very least your prophecy of how this thing is going to go pans out it's and if not, it doesn't not prophecy, that you but, got wrong <laughs>
1: well look i'll just reiterate in war everybody gets something profoundly wrong sure. and and so and, and the issue is not To try to make sure that doesn't happen, it's who is quicker at recognizing when they've been making a mistake and able to face it and adjust to it. And I think at the end of the day, this is the great advantage that free societies have, that for a whole bunch of reasons, you're more likely to have leaders who will either face facts on their own or be forced to face facts. Nobody's going to force Vladimir Putin to face facts until the very end. Right. So that's the advantage we have, and we should be
0: uh, mindful of it and grateful for it. I'm very happy to see that so-called war fatigue hasn't really set in. Um, Populations from our country to the UK, for sure, but also European nations that were seen as somewhat wobbly are still very committed and still very focused on the TikTok of what's happening.
1: I have no patience for the idea of war fatigue unless you're sending a son or daughter off to war, which which I've done. So it uh, you know when people talked about Americans being War fatigued, you know, during Iraq and Afghanistan. My line was always, "If you've got a son or a daughter, husband or wife, or father or mother over there, sure, I understand. That's uh, you. You know, you're entitled."
0: There's also something a little bit perverse about war fatigue for a war that you and your own country are not fighting itself. Yeah, and and you should have no patience with it. Yeah. So anyway, Elliot, thanks so much for doing this. It was great, and we'll have you back again soon you've been listening to foreign office i'm michael weiss director of special investigation the free russia foundation my guest this week is or has been elliot cohn a professor of strategic studies at johns hopkins school of advanced international studies Uh, thanks again we'll see you next time